word. We're working our way through Mark's Gospel, as you know. Let's all stand to begin with. And I'm going to read from Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through to verse 42, um, as Jesus goes to Gethsemane. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it was possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he said, and he came the third time, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Please be seated. Let's come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, our Lord and our God, we thank you that we can come to you now to worship you and that you are here with us. Thank you, Lord, that we can consider your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it is your word that transforms us, that draws us nearer to you, that causes us to grow, to mature as your people, and therefore to be able to worship you more meaningfully as a result of your word in our lives. Lord, we pray, therefore, as always, that you will open this word to our hearts, that you will help us to understand, to learn, to grow, to be transformed, to be drawn to you, and therefore that you will find all of this acceptable and I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory. Amen. So in Mark's Gospel we're getting close to the cross, although we will be having a break uh, for Christmas. Um, and then we'll start again next year. But um, the agony of the cup really is what we're looking at uh, this morning. Jesus goes to Gethsemane. In Mark 14, the verses that I read to you, 32 to 42, we see Jesus' agony in the garden of Gethsemane. So he wrestles... And he's really wrestling with the, the coming cross. This is a Friday. It's very dark. It's night time. It's uh, the day that he's going to be crucified and the day that he will die. Now the prophet Isaiah gave us a prophecy about the Messiah's suffering. And in Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet says many things about how the Messiah will suffer. That he would be wounded for our transgression that he would be bruised for our iniquities, that he would be chastised for our peace, that he would suffer in our place. But he also said this in verse 3, that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In the 33 years of Jesus' life in this world as God incarnate, he was constantly exposed to the sorrows of life. He knew what the heart of humans were like, which meant that he not only saw people suffer, as well as suffering himself, but he felt their pain. He understood the grief, he understood the sorrow that goes in a fallen world of sin and disease and unbelief and ignorance and rebellion and rejection. 
disobedience, suffering, poverty, loss and certainly death. And he saw and he felt all of these aspects of human suffering. He even gave temporary relief while he was on earth, showing his compassion as he healed people and he cast out demons and he raised the dead and he fed hungry crowds. But uh, that was a, a sort of a temporary, a physical reprieve from the sorrows of life, just during those three years that he had his ministry on earth. At the same time, there's also a preview of the kingdom, because one day he's going to return and establish an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years. And in that kingdom... Suffering will be severely mitigated and diminished. Sorrow will be diminished. Life will be lengthened and health will be increased. But even that, even at its best, will still only be a preview of heaven. Where there's no sickness, no sadness, no crying, no tears, no death, no sin. But on earth, Jesus saw it all and he felt it all and he was moved with compassion. It's interesting in the New Testament that it never says that Jesus ever laughed. It does say, though, that he was sad. It does say that he wept, he cried. It does say that he experienced sorrow upon sorrow. He experienced the full sorrow that really, in ways that we would never be able to, he, he felt our pain. We can only really sort of absorb so much pain from other people, um, pain that's outside of us. But he felt people's pain in a way that we can't, because he understood it. He experienced it in the sense that we don't experience it. And as much sorrow as he had, though, there was no sorrow, no grief in this life that he experienced in these particular verses. This has been called the last temptation that he went through and it certainly was a, a temptation. This particular experience of sorrow and grief was so severe that we read here, so intense that it almost physically killed him. It was so severe that the Bible says it evoked out of him loud crying and tears. So severe that he even sweat blood. We see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. All the Gospels describe this. And apart from the cross itself, no greater agony has ever been experienced by any human being in this world. No human has ever suffered this way. And in one sense it's the second greatest agony that Jesus would experience because the, the greatest agony would be soon to come when he actually went to that cross and he was separated from the Father. But this is really, in a sense, is the, the apex of sorrow, grief, the high point of suffering. That very night, as he's in that garden, he anticipates the drinking of the divine cup of wrath that will be his in full at the cross. And this is a conflict that he'd never ever experienced in all time. Far greater than any previous encounter with Satan. If you remember the first time he encountered Satan was in the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan for a period of 40 days. He never ate during that time. And Satan really was saying to him, you know, you're hungry. You deserve to eat. You're God. You know, make some bread. You can do it. Why go hungry? Jump off the tower. I mean, everyone will then know that you are the Messiah. You deserve the accolade. You deserve the honour. You're God. You're supposed to have the kingdom of the world. Bow down to me and you can have them right now. Just take it. Satan was basically trying to defect him from the cross. In that first temptation, the point of that was to defect Jesus from the cross. 
The second time that's recorded in the Bible when we see Satan particularly attacking is in Matthew 16 when Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to die, as he said many, many times. And Peter says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. No, you, that's, you can't do that. That's not going to happen. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Again, that was Satan's effort to keep Jesus from the cross. Happened to come through the mouth of Peter, but it was Satan trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And it's very important for us to understand that. Because as we saw last week, Satan always tried to keep Jesus from the cross. He didn't want Jesus to be crucified. Satan wasn't behind the crucifixion. That was the last thing he wanted. In the first temptation, he offered Jesus everything that he could without the cross. Through Peter. He says, it's an outrage to think of you going to a cross and dying. Don't do it. And here in the garden, that's what he's doing again. He shows up again, we know that because it says in Luke 22 verse 53, this is the hour of the power of darkness. In other words, this is the specific time for Satan to act. This is the culminating effort of Satan to keep Jesus from the cross. And the idea was to drive Jesus to the Father and say, this is too much, I can't do it. It's too much to bear. I'm not going to do it. And if Satan succeeded, then hell would be the only place where people would live forever. Heaven would be empty, God's word would be untrue, the promise of salvation would be a lie, and Satan would then be sovereign. So this is a huge, uh, a monumental battle. And no wonder the struggle was so severe that Jesus says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. It all starts in verse 32, as I read earlier. They came, it says, they mean Jesus and the eleven. Judas, obviously, has left to betray Jesus. So Jesus and the eleven, they leave the place where they'd had the Passover in that upper room on the Thursday night. It's very late at night, probably just around midnight. It said they sang a hymn, as we saw the other week, at the head of to the Mount of Olives, verse 26. And as they're going, Jesus says, you're all going to fall, you're going to be scattered, you're going to end up denying me. Of course it says in verse 31 they don't believe that. Peter says, well I'll die before I'll do that. And they all said the same thing it says. Then they came to this garden of Gethsemane. Now um, in Jerusalem there are not many gardens. Certainly weren't in these days. So people would have their gardens on the hillsides outside of the wall of the city. Many people had gardens. Only if you were pretty wealthy would you have a garden. But if you did have a garden, it would most likely be outside the city, outside the wall. This was one of those particular gardens. This was somebody who owned a garden and gave Jesus and the disciples permission to use it again and again. Maybe an outdoor type of accommodation could have been there. Some kind of shelter where they could sleep at night. When they were near Jerusalem, they often stayed at the house of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. Now, we don't know how big that house was. It must have been pretty big. But perhaps not all of them could fit in there. Perhaps some of them went to Gethsemane and slept there. We don't know. It wasn't just at Passover that this happened. John 18 verse 2 tells us that Jesus often stayed there in Gethsemane with his disciples. So they were there quite regularly. It was a place to escape the crowds. It was a private garden somewhere where they could get away and spend time together. That's important because that's why Judas knew where they were. Luke Chapter 22, verse 39 tells us. So he was another nameless person who provides something for Jesus. He provides his garden, the same way that the man nameless provided the donkey, and another nameless man provided the upper room. 
So they arrive at this garden called Gethsemane. Uh, by the way, that means an olive press. So there may well have been an olive press there. And when they arrive at this garden, he says to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. According to the parallel account in Luke 22 verse 40, he says, Pray that you may not enter in temptation. So he, he warns them. Remember, he's only just warned them of the danger that they were in of scattering. He says, you will scatter. You are going to fail. You need to pray. It's the only way that you're going to manage. You will not manage this in your own strength. In other words, you need God's strength. You need to pray or you will scatter. Of course he knew they weren't going to pray and he knew they were going to scatter. He also wants them to pray that they will not enter in temptation. They can't face it in their own strength. Now with all that as background, let's now look at the scene that unfolds in these few verses. And the first thing we see is really a, a transcendent affliction. By that I mean a, an affliction that, that is greater than anything that anyone's ever faced. Greater than anything that Jesus ever faced. Greater than uh, anything ever experienced. It says in verse 33, he took with him Peter, James and John. But why did he take these three, you might ask, deeper in the garden and leave the other eight by the entrance? Well, these are the three main leaders. These are the three closest to Jesus. James and John were the ones also who came to Jesus with their mother saying, can we sit at your right and your left hand? So they obviously thought that they were pretty elevated. They knew him a lot more than the others. Perhaps they were closer. And of course then there's Peter who was the recognised leader. So these three have the most influence and Jesus wanted to teach these three a lesson that then they could pass on to the others. It's something more intimate. So he says, come with me, you've got something to learn really and, and when you learn it, you can teach it to the rest. These three were going to learn how important it is to pray so that you will be triumphant in temptation. However, they're going to learn it the hard way. They're going to learn it by failing to pray and falling into the temptation. That's the way, sadly, that we often learn. We, we do learn by failure, quite often. So they were going to learn out of the disaster of the fact that they don't pray. That they do then fall into temptation. And they'll remember that more. So this inner circle, Peter, James and John, went with Jesus a little bit further into this garden. So it's a big garden in order that their weakness may be exposed. Remember two of them were, were so confident that they thought that they should sit on the right and left hand side of Jesus in heaven. So they need to learn this. And Peter probably even surpasses them in his overconfidence, thinking he's the most elevated of all, that he would never fail, that he will die before he does anything that would cause him to turn away from Jesus. So they need to learn this lesson. Jesus takes them to prayer. And that makes you think, doesn't it? Because if Jesus himself needed to pray in the face of temptation, how much more did they need to pray? How much more do we need to pray? He was tempted at all points like we are yet without sin because he drew on the Father's strength and protection. How much more do we need to? So then the three go in the garden to a certain point. And it says, as they're going further on, these three plus Jesus, verse 33, Jesus began to be very distressed and troubled. Uh, the, the word there, distressed, is an interesting word. It's a compound form of the verb to be amazed. That's really what happened. Jesus was amazed at how bad this was. Now, what could amaze Jesus? When you think about that, he's omniscient. He knows everything. Is there any experience that he's never had? 
And the answer to that is yes. At that point, there was one experience that Jesus has never had. One thing that he didn't know about. And he was about to have it. Because he's amazed at what he's experiencing because it's totally alien to him. Totally alien to anything he's ever experienced before. In fact, it caused him to be troubled, to be astonished, to be anguished, to be amazed. What was it then that was causing him to be so amazed, so troubled? Was it the rejection of the nation of Israel and the defection of Judas? No, it wasn't that. Was it the desertion of the eleven that was about to happen, which he knew about? Again, no. Was it the injustice of the mock trials to come later that day? Again, no. Was it the mockery, the spitting, the punching, the scourging, the crucifixion, the dying? No. Those things were terrible. Those things would cause him immense pain and anguish, but they weren't really what was causing him the greatest anguish. What was it that caused these amazed feelings of anguish? It was something more than all those things put together. Those things, as I say, caused him a great deal of pain, but it was something beyond all that. The thing that was causing him the, the anguish, the pain, the amazement, was his anticipation of experiencing the Father's will by embracing the role of becoming a sacrifice for sin and being separated from the Father. That's what really caused Jesus the greatest pain, the greatest suffering, the greatest anguish, the greatest amazement. That's something that Jesus had never experienced before, to become a sin-bearer. To face something completely alien to himself. Because remember, he is God in the flesh, and he's never, ever known sin. He's never known the wrath of God the Father. He's never known alienation and separation from the Father. He didn't know sin at all. He hated sin. I mean, we're tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. None of those had ever entered into his life. He was fully man, yes, but he was sinless. There was nothing in his nature that could be drawn to sin. He hated sin. It repulsed him because he's God. This temptation, therefore, was not attacking him at the point of sin, like it is for us. This was attacking him at the point of his holiness. We struggle with sin because the power of evil is so strong in our nature. Um, it's internal, it's strong. We struggle to do what's right. We struggle to, to grasp righteousness. Our fight is against the impulses of evil that are already within us. That wasn't so with Jesus. He didn't have any sin within him. He struggled with the power of holiness. That was the only thing in him. And what God was asking him to do was to literally take on sin. Not as a sinner, but as a sin-bearer. To take on sin. To actually accept our punishment for sin. For every sinner for whom he died, Jesus took that sinner's eternal wrath. For the millions of sinners for whom he died, he took a million eternities of wrath. And yet he was wholly sinless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He couldn't even bear to look at sin. And that's why the struggle was so immense. In verse 34 it says, My soul is deeply grieved. He's literally surrounded by sorrow and grief. He was engulfed in grief. He'd never before said yes to alienation from the Father. He'd never 
ever before said yes to guilt. He'd never before said yes to sin bearing. He'd never before said yes to punishment. And his anguish was so immense because Satan was also trying to get him to avoid the cross. That's why it says in Luke chapter 22 verse 43 that God sent an angel to strengthen him. He needed help. He needed physical help at this point. Not spiritual but physical. The angel strengthened him physically. An angel came just when Jesus was almost at the point of physical death. And how severe was it? Well Luke 22 verse 44 says the struggle was so immense, such stress on his physical form that he began to sweat drops of blood. And that's a a clinical thing, the clinical name for that is hematidrosis. Um, it can happen when under immense stress and uh, the capillaries um, of the body begin to inflate and explode and blood literally comes out of the sweat glands. That happens when a human is at the point of maximum stress. It's, it's quite rare. But that's what happened with Jesus. The anguish is so profound that an angel had to literally come and save him from physically dying. It says in verse 34 and 35, Then he said, Remain here and keep watch. And he left the three further into the garden, and he went a little beyond them. About a stone's throat, it says in Luke 22, verse 41. And it says, And he fell to the ground, and he began to pray, that if it was possible, the hour might pass by him. This was the hour of the power of darkness. All suffering leading up to and including the cross. Now some people look at that and they think, well that shows you that, that Jesus was weak. Doesn't that show you his reluctance to obey the Father? Well no, because he said, thy will be done. So it's not shown that he's reluctant to obey the Father. It doesn't show that he's weak. In fact, it's the opposite. If he didn't react like that, you would wonder if he was really holy. Because that is the only response, the only possible response of a holy God to the thought of bearing the sin the guilt, the judgment of all people who accept him as Lord and Saviour. That's the most acceptable, the most normal expected response of a holy God to what was about to happen. If he didn't say that, you might wonder if he's actually God. We don't have a perfect hatred for sin, but he did. And everything in his being was repulsed at the thought of what was about to happen. That plea is completely, entirely consistent with his nature as God. That actually proves that he is God. Too pure to look upon sin. It says in Habakkuk 1 verse 13 that God can't even look at sin. And yet he's about to take it on. No wonder he came almost to the point of death with blood loss so severe that an angel has to come and physically rescue him. And his words are given, and his prayer is given, which takes us to the second point, the passionate petition. He says, Abba, Father. Now, Abba means Daddy. Not just, he's not just calling God the Father, Father. He's saying Daddy. It's very intimate. It's very familiar. No Jew would even call God Father. I mean, they wouldn't call God Father. They wouldn't even think to call him Daddy. To be that intimate. But Jesus in his hour of great distress, says Abba. He calls upon God the Father in an affectionate, intimate, personal name. And then he says, all things are possible. You can remove this cup. Of course, if he doesn't go to the cross, we've got some big problems. Satan would win, heaven would be empty, hell would be full, the Bible wouldn't be true, the promises God would be a lie, and there would be no salvation. Now, theoretically, God can do anything. But... 
There's one thing he can't do, and that's lie. He can't break a promise because he's God. He's already promised throughout the Old Testament that salvation will come through a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, he said, there is no forgiveness of sin. He can't go back on his word. He can't do something that he's promised not to do. He can't not do something that he's promised to do. In other words, he always keeps his promises. The request is clear. We know what's on Jesus' heart. He would rather not go through with this. And as again, I say, that proves that he's God. Of course he doesn't want to go through it. He's God. And the cup there, the symbol, is the cup of God's wrath. We see that in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, Psalm 11, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, and so on. It's the cup of God's wrath. So he's saying about this divine cup of wrath, he has to embrace the wrath of his Father. And again, it's something that he's never, ever experienced, but he knew that it was coming. Earlier in John chapter 12 he says, I'm going to die. He even gave an illustration. If a grain of wheat doesn't fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. He's always saying that he's going to die and he knows what's going to happen. But then we get a triumphant resolution. Not what I will, but what you will. In other words, as God is saying, you know, I don't want to do this, obviously, but I'm going to do it. Because it's not my will, it's your will. He always said that. He only does what the Father tells him to do. And then we see something beautiful, because even in the horrors of this agonising struggle, the greatest struggle that he's ever gone through or ever will go through, what does he do? He starts to think about the disciples. Verse 37, he then stops praying and he goes and he checks on them. Of course, they're asleep. And he says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for even an hour? Luke tells us something helpful there. It says they were asleep for sorrow. Things were not going the way they wanted them to go. Where was the kingdom? Where was the glory? There's an anticipating. There's a betrayer. Someone who's gone off to do his dirty deed. Now they're going to be told that they're going to flee. They're going to deny him. The whole thing looks terrible. It's all falling apart. It's not working the way they wanted to work. The nations turned against him, the religious leaders hate him, they want him dead, and they were sorrowful. And that's why they slept. Sorrow can put you to sleep. Their sorrows were exceedingly heavy. But Jesus gives them a warning. He says, keep watch, pray that you will not come into temptation. Don't you understand the danger that you're in? Keep alert, keep praying. Peter certainly learned this lesson later. He writes in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, Be on the alert, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to see whom he can devour. Jesus gives us a simple lesson. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what Jesus is saying here is, You do not have the ability to face this yourself. You need to pray. You need God's strength. Jesus, though, the amazing thing is, even in the midst of all of this pain, this anguish, the greatest pain and anguish that is possible to face, he was still concerned about these men. He still went back and he was concerned about him. That's the sort of God you want, somebody who is concerned to that extent, even in his own suffering, that he would be bothered about these men. No matter how intense the struggle is, he has you in his heart. But they went away and he prayed and he said the same words, he repeated it and they fell asleep again and he went back. They just kept on falling asleep. But finally we see the triumphant submission. In each of the three cycles of prayers 
he always comes back and he's really saying your will be done and then he says in verse 41 it's enough he's going to the cross the temptation is over the struggle is finished the answer is clear the hour has come and he says look the son of man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners he could probably see Judas and all the entourage coming up the hill leaders of the Sanhedrin of Israel other dignitaries the temple police cohort of Roman soldiers could have been as many as 600 could have been as many as a thousand people coming up that hill with torches and Jesus sees them and he said look the son of man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners how did they know where he was? well Judas because he knew where the garden was and he says the son of man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners the word there is sinners that's what made the struggle so immense so so much of an agonising struggle how is it that the son of God could be turned over to sinners how could God allow him to be turned over to sinners who would kill him and that's precisely why the struggle was so much but he says get up let's be going behold the one who betrays me is at hand he could see Judas coming up the hill the clubs the swords the whole entourage they were afraid obviously that there might be a riot that Jesus might be rescued by the people so they came with this great force and he says in John 18 tells us he says whom do you seek they say Jesus of Nazareth and he says I am he and they all fell flat on the ground as many as a thousand just hit the ground just by the sound of his voice so in his triumphant, triumphant resolve he goes to betray their faces betrayer and the religious leaders of Judaism now the rest of the account is critical and we're going to look at that next Sunday morning let's pray Father we thank you for your word in our lives we thank you that you're our God and our Lord we thank you Lord that we can come to you and we can worship you this morning Amen Let's please be standing we're going to have a two minute silence because it is now 11 o'clock I'm not sure why they're making so much noise when they should be having a bit of silence but that's up to them the silence starts now for two minutes